0: Number 114 won't do you any good to go to the book but um, you can open your Bible if you would please to Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19 in today's study of what transpired next following the Lord's encounter with the poor rich man we find that the rich young rulers sad departure evoked a discussion by the Lord on the subject of both wealth and rewards. A discussion that is found once again in all three synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But because Matthew gives us the most detail, we will be primarily using Matthew 19 as our source, although I will have you going over to Mark chapter 10 and maybe even Luke 18 to look at some additional information that the parallel accounts give us. Our outline for this study, which is entitled The Rich Poor Men. What did we look at last week? The Poor Rich Man. Today, it's The Rich Poor Men, consists of just two subjects. We're going to look at the peril of trusting in riches, the danger of trusting in riches. And then we will look at the promise of true riches and what are true riches. Riches in Christ, our true riches, are spiritual riches that we only gain by being in Christ. So let's look, first of all, at the peril of trusting in riches. And for this, we will look at Matthew 19, starting at verse 23. Matthew 19. This was right after, if you look at verse 22, when the young man uh, heard what the Lord had to say to him, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily, I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Well, over I won't read it to you, but over in the parallel account in Matthew I mean no, I'm sorry, Luke eighteen, it tells us that Jesus observed the deep sorrowfulness in the rich young ruler's departure from him it says and when he saw that he was very sorrowful and then over in mark we are told something that neither luke nor matthew tell us which is that before jesus then turned to speak to his disciples you know the rich man walked off the lord saw his sorrow unfortunately it was a sorrow of remorse and not a a sorrow of repentance but as he saw the sorrow in that young man we're told that he looked roundabout that's in mark 10:23 he observes everything he saw the heart of the young man and then he looked a penetrating look at his men to see what that episode how it had impressed his men what they thought of it and it tells us really when we look at those accounts that he sees it all don't his eyes go to and fro across the whole world he can read the expression of a person's face just as easily as he can read the human heart. So he gave a sweeping look at his men to see what their impression of this whole episode was. And then he turned his full attention to them. He's going to... He always uses everything that happened in his life as a teaching experience. He's going to turn his focus to his men, his disciples, because it's very, very important for them to learn the lesson of this incident, this this encounter with that rich young ruler they were the ones upon whom he was putting all his hope for the you know the furtherance of the gospel and so they were the ones he had to teach and he's going to talk to them about the subject the danger of trusting in riches and he is also going to talk to them about the promise of true riches spiritual riches heavenly rewards the danger of trusting in riches can make rich men poor As we saw last week. But the subject of promise, true riches can make poor men rich. Now, both of these subjects were very important. And you know how I know that? Because he begins both of these subjects with the word verily. If you notice that, look at verse 23. He says, Verily I say unto you. And then he starts the second subject in verse 28. Again, he says, Verily I say unto you. And whenever the Lord says verily, it means what? Listen up exactly of a truth. This is going to be important. So we know that what he's going to say to his men here is very important, not only for them, but it's very important for you and I as well. Well, first of all, he spoke to his men about the danger of trusting in riches. He said to them, verily, I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that statement and the proverbial saying that followed in verse 24 about a camel entering through the eye of a needle being more easily accomplished than a rich man. Is it easy to push a camel through the eye of a needle? Can't do it. (laughs) It, Don't even try. (laughs) It's impossible. But let's just take it right now at face value. Is Is it possible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle? No way. All right. But he's saying that that would be easier than for a rich man to enter into God's kingdom. Well, saying that, as you can imagine, absolutely floored the disciples. They were exceeding, exceedingly amazed. It says in verse 25 was the Lord saying that people who are wealthy can hardly make it into the kingdom. They can but they can hardly make it. Or was he saying that like a camel getting through the eye of a needle, it's impossible for rich men to get into heaven? Well, I asked my husband about that and he says, well, it means that a rich man can get in, but you know, hardly it's, it's difficult for him, but he can get in. I said, well, hmm, I might have a different approach to that. And one indicator, what do we always have to do when we want to find out what something really means? We have to go to the original language. You're used to me doing that. All right. So I had to look up the word hardly because the word is found in all three of the synoptic accounts. But unfortunately, it's the only time this Greek word is found in the New Testament. So that doesn't help us a whole lot because we can't compare it with how it's used in other places. But the word is the word hardly. Hardly is the word disklos, which is the equivalent of the word impossible, so that what he is saying there, I've lost my verse, where is it? 23, what he is literally saying is, Verily I say unto you that a rich man, it's impossible for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, hmm, is this why the Lord then had told the rich young ruler that he had to go and sell everything, so that he could then be poor, So that he could enter into the kingdom of heaven. Does this mean that heaven is only for those who are poor? And what's the definition of rich and poor? You know, how poor do you have to be to be considered poor? How rich do you have to be to be considered rich? And we're all rich here we are does this mean that all who are spiritually dead in their sins must give away everything that they have in this physical realm so that they will be able to enter into the spiritual realm the spiritual realm of life life eternal and if so if that's true then what do we do with job for example who was exceedingly wealthy in fact he was the wealthiest man in the east and even before he lost his wealth he was called God's choice servant. And what do we do with Abraham, who was exceedingly wealthy? And he was called the friend of God. And he passed on all his great wealth to Isaac, who was also wealthy, passed it on to to Jacob. And Jacob got, well, he lost it, but then he got even wealthier. And what about Joseph? Joseph rose to be the second to Pharaoh over the nation of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt. And what about Moses? He was very rich. What about David? Exceedingly rich. And Solomon was even richer than David. And uh, Josiah, King Josiah was a wealthy man. Obviously, he was a king. And he was a godly man. Uh, Jehoshaphat was a rich king and a godly one. Hezekiah and Daniel. Don't think of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, like Joseph, rose to be second in command there in the the empire of Babylon. He was rich. What about, uh, let's go into the New Testament. What about Joseph of Arimathea? What about Lydia, who was a seller of purple and very wealthy? And Nicodemus. And our good friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, who we discussed several weeks ago, were very wealthy and many others um, in 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 the New and Old Testament. Now, some of these men and women did have to forfeit their riches. Some of them did not. Some of them had their riches taken from them, but then they were replaced, such as Job and Jacob Many of them were actually blessed with prosperity by the Lord himself. And they were very good stewards of that which they had. So you see, we have a problem because the text actually says, Verily I say unto you that it's impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, of God so we have on the one hand many godly rich people in this in the scripture and on the other hand this passage and it seems to be a problem and this is certainly one of those cases where i am so glad that the lord did give us three accounts of this episode or this uh, discussion because here mark helps us out quite a bit let's flip over to mark and see what mark was inspired to say that jesus said all right mark 10:24. let's look at god's Inspired rendition of this to John Mark are you all there Mark 10:24. notice the Lord says children here he calls his disciples children this is the only time in the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and look where he calls the disciples children what do you think that means they hadn't yet arrived they hadn't <laughs> they are still children in his sight as you and I are in his sight because we're still learning we're still to him as children but here's the only time he called them children now in john's gospel he did refer to them once as little children (laughs) but here he says children how hard and there's that greek word these which means impossible children how impossible is it for them oh here we go that trust enriches To enter into the kingdom of God. You see, the rich young ruler's problem had not been his riches. Money, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. It had had been his trust in his riches. And uh, the subsequent trust in what he could do. What can I do? You know, he felt like he was a blessed, rich man. He could do something to enter into the kingdom of God. The real danger of riches is in a person's love for and trust in them. It's not merely difficult. It is impossible for the one who trusts in his riches rather than trusting in God to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then to further demonstrate how impossible it is for one trusting in his riches to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which you'll you'll notice are used interchangeably in this encounter or this discussion, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. You might want to go back to Matthew, I think. But to to further illustrate this, the Lord then used a colloquialism or a little proverbial saying, a hyperbole that was very well known back in his day in the East. To speak of how impossible a particular task might be, that task would be compared to a camel passing through the eye of a needle. For example, if I had some giant task in front of me, I haven't even begun my Christmas shopping or, you know, I was just, but, but uh, it's an impossible task. Okay. I, that wasn't a good example. Some huge task in front of me. And I said, boy, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for than for me to accomplish that task. It was a very common little proverb that was used. And uh, it, it's interesting that the Persian equivalent back then it was even found in the Babylonian Talmud was of an elephant passing through the eye of a needle. Because, see, um, the the, the uh, Persians, the Iranians, and the Indians from India, they didn't have... They, they used elephants more than camels, whereas in the Middle East they, they were more familiar with the camel. But it was a, a very common expression. Now, because it is absolutely impossible for either a camel or an elephant to pass through a needle's eye, you know, a needle, a threading needle, and because this would then sound like the lord was and actually would be that the lord was saying that rich people because in matthew and luke's account it does actually say this it doesn't have the little trust in riches part in luke and matthew it actually says that the lord said rich people have absolutely no hope at all of receiving eternal life Um, so because that proverb backs up that statement People over the years have come up with different interpretations about what this little proverb is really saying other than what it literally says. And so what they have tried to do is they have tried to either decrease the size of the object such as the camel or the elephant or they have tried to increase the size of the orifice the whole and so over the years they have come up with these different ideas about what the Lord was really saying even though that expression is still used in the Middle East and among Arabs today and it is still said a camel it's difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and the Arabs say it's difficult for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle all right so one thing that they have tried to do to make this not say that it's impossible for wealthy people to get into the kingdom is that they have attempted to lessen the size of the camel and so what they say is that the greek word for camel which is kamelos um, should have been kamelos it's just a, a difference of one letter in the word because Camelos means camel, but Camelos means a ship's cable. You know what I'm talking about? A ship's cable. I've been on a ship and I've seen those cables. Have any of you I mean they're big. They're about what is that about a twelve inch diameter. Big cables. And but to accept that interpretation, you would have to say that all the scribes copying all of the um, New Testament manuscripts, every one of them made a mistake. Not only the scribes copying Matthew's account, but also the scribes copying Mark and Luke, that they made mistakes and wrote camel, camelos, instead of camelos. Now, that to me is totally unacceptable because that means that the Bible's full of errors. If we couldn't trust those scribes in three different places, how do we know what we can trust? That's unacceptable to me. Plus, what difference would it make? You still can't get a ship's cable. I have trouble getting a little piece of thread through the eye of a needle, much less a ship's cable. It wouldn't change the situation at all. So then there have been those who instead have tried to increase the size of the, the orifice, the hole. You know? so, so you will read, and I'm sure you have heard this taught before, that there was a small side gate in the wall uh, that once surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And it was known as the Needle's Eye Gate. And that entrance through this gate was only about three or four feet tall, which is certainly, have to admit, that's bigger than the eye of a needle, three or four feet high. Now, the story goes that if a traveler arrived at the city late at night when all of the other gates to the city had already been closed... And he wanted to enter into the city, into the safety of the city of Jerusalem with his camel, you know, loaded up, his camel loaded. <laughs> the, the load on his camel would ha- have to be removed and the animal would then have to be urged down on its knees. Uh, which, did you know a camel's knees bend backwards? It's a very interesting creature that God God has a sense of humor with some of the creatures that he made i'm looking around the room <laughs> oh that was terrible that wasn't a very <laughs> you can look at me and see a strange creature but a camel is have you, any of you ever ridden a camel raise your hand You're quite a few of you We only had one lady yesterday, but isn't it an experience? It was a unique experience, one of those unique experiences in my life when I was in Egypt and got on a camel. The only day on the tour, I decided to wear a dress. (laughs) And that was the day we rode the camels, and I had to share the camel with my son. He was only seven at the time, but I didn't have anything. He was holding on to the, the saddle, and I had nothing to hold on to. And when a camel goes down because his knees bend backwards, he goes down, and you just about shoot off the top of him. <laughs> it was, I, And I had to sit side saddle because of that stupid dress. Anyway, very interesting experience. But uh, So they say that the camel has to be unloaded, or would have to be unloaded of all its baggage, and then encouraged to get down on its knees and crawl through the needle gate, which at a height of three or four feet. But a camel problem is, a camel has humps, <laughs> And even if he's down on his knees, his, his, his humps come to around four feet high, but you say, well, maybe get the hump in there, but what about his head? Can you picture a camel? Uh, His head goes higher than his humps. And so his head is about five or six feet tall, even when he's on his knees, this is going to be, this is almost getting to be impossible just to get him through the needles gate. You see, and I don't know what the Arabs do with the elephant version of this because <laughs> they get an elephant on his knees. There's still no way unless it guess he's a little bitty baby elephant. And why would you be coming into Jerusalem with a baby elephant? <laughs> anyway, um, oh, by the way, did I tell you that the expression about an elephant going through? i is even found in the Quran. It's quoted. Did I say that already? Okay, it's quoted in the Quran. All right, um, anyway. <laughs> One problem with this interpretation, which, by the way, was not suggested by men until the 15th century. They didn't come up with this needles-eye-gate idea until the 15th century. But a big problem with it is that there is no reference to a gate of any kind in the, in the proverb. Do you read about a gate? What does it say? It's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. I don't read about any gate there in the proverb. Second big problem with it is that there is absolutely no historical or archaeological record anywhere in the Bible or extra biblical material that tells us that there was a Jerusalem gate called either the needles eye gate or the eye of the needle gate. You see, those who conceived of this idea, and I know that throws some of you off because you've heard that before. But that idea was conceived by those who were trying to get the Lord's expression to mean that it was very difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven. But it could be done. It wasn't impossible because if you take it literally, it is impossible. It's easier for for a a camel to get through eye of an eel than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And I want to understand the Lord's words as they stand. I don't want to go by what men say and what little interpretations they come up with. You know, and I find as I studied this, that this is exactly what the scripture says. The Greek word that is used in all three of these synoptic gospel accounts is camelos, which is the word for camel. And the word for needle is literally a uh, needle like you would think of a needle, except it's a, it refers to actually a surgeon's suturing needle, which would make the needle a little bit bigger, but still the eye of it is, is small, and you can't possibly get a camel through it. So the Lord Jesus was, was saying that it is completely impossible for a camel, humps and all, <laughs> to pass through the eye of a sewing needle, and yet such a feat would be easier than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. A man who trusts in his riches, and even a, man, a rich man who doesn't trust in his riches... Because that's what Matthew and Luke say, that even a rich man, it's impossible for him to get into the kingdom. It's discolos, impossible. In fact, now here's the key. In fact, it is impossible for anybody, anybody, rich or poor, to enter into the kingdom of God on his own. And that's exactly what the Mosaic law taught. And we discussed this in greater detail last week, but I wanna again just state that the law was not given by God and it was not given by Christ to the rich young ruler to show men how to be saved. The law was given to show them how visculos, how impossible it is to meet this, his standards of, of absolute righteousness and holiness and, and goodness in, in his own strength and power. It is as impossible for a person, rich or poor, or anything else, to save himself as it is for a person to change his race or for a a leopard to change his spots. And that's exactly what God said to us through Jeremiah the prophet when he said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. It's as impossible for a person to change his race or, you know, the, the color of his skin or for an animal to change the pattern of his skin as it is for... That's as impossible as it is for people who are accustomed to doing evil because we're all born in sin It's as impossible for us who are used to doing evil all of our lives to do good um, in our own self-effort. Ever since the fall, ever since the fall of man, all of our works of righteousness accomplished in our own self-effort apart from God are nothing in his sight but what? filthy rags, all of, if we even took all of our, our wealth, our combined wealth, and we piled all our wealth together and, and, and built a big tower to try to get to God, would our combined wealth reach God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, and this, yesterday I mentioned this to the women, so I'll mention it to you. How many of you seen on the news that this far-left atheist organization I can't remember the name of it, but they have paid for advertising on the sides of buses in our capital, Washington, D.C. And the advertisement is just advertising atheism is what it's advertising. It says on the side of these city buses, Washington, D.C., why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake can you imagine that traveling around in our capital and I was thinking about that of course when I saw it on the news I try not to well I have to watch the news because I need to know what's going on but boy it can be depressing sometimes but that just that just angered me and then I got to thinking about how illogical it is for one thing it's why I believe in a God be good for goodness sake and I got to thinking you know what God they're talking about there Santa Claus you heard my message yesterday didn't you (laughs) <laughs> Where does that little expression come from? Be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming. Where's the goodness to good? I don't know, but it's in there somewhere. <laughs> good for goodness sake. Sure, you can be good if you've got Santa Claus's standards of goodness. A lot of naughty people get gifts from Santa Claus, right? So that's kind of, that part of it was, I thought, sort of, funny but the other thing is be good for goodness sake alright mm. these are atheists right they don't believe in a god you know what they believe in they believe in evolutionism that we all just evolved by chance through billions of years that there's no purpose there is no god so there's no good and there's no evil right if you don't believe in god where do you get your definition for what's good and what's evil what is being good? What's your definition of good? Well, every man just does that which is right in his own eyes. For some people, it's good to blow yourself up, take other people with you, and you'll, you know, get into heaven and have all kinds of virgins forever. For some people, it's good to have a same-sex partner. You know, I mean, what's your definition of goodness if you don't believe in God? He's, he's our definition of goodness. Without him, there is no good. There is no evil. <laughs> anyway, I hope those buses don't come down here to the south, but uh, they probably will in time. Actually, wealth does not really prove to be any kind of an advantage at all. It's impossible for any man on his own to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but wealth doesn't really prove to be an advantage because uh, it creates... As we saw with the rich young ruler, even more barriers to salvation by and large, by and large, not always true as I've shown you from scripture, but by and large, the rich tend to put a false security in their riches because money can buy them all their physical needs and their wants. So they see little reason to depend on God, which is why the scripture says that not many, um, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Because generally, and the wise there is the phronimos wise, not the godly wise, not the Sophia wise. But generally the wise, those the world looks at as wise and mighty and noble, tend to be those who also have a lot of wealth. Many have trusted in their riches not only to buy them security in this life, but also supposed security in the life to come. For hundreds of years, we've talked about this many times, but for hundreds of years, the Jews taught that wealth was a sure sign of God's divine favor, that he was pleased with the one upon whom he granted riches. And the rabbis even taught, this is interesting, I had never known this before, but they taught that it was sinful for a Jew to give away more than one-fifth of his riches. So so they made a law, they were always making their own little laws up, but they made a law that you could not give away more than 20% of your wealth. And if you did, it was a sin. Now why do you think they made up that little rule? <laughs> Duh! <laughs> that was just a way of protecting their own greedy love of riches. You know, maybe one of the Pharisees gave away more than a fifth, and everybody said, "Oh, isn't he wonderful?" Oh, and the rest of them didn't like that. I don't want to have to be spiritual by giving my wealth away. So they came up with this law. They also taught that God, God's pleasure, with a monetary um, or material gift, was in direct proportion to its size. So the wealthy would love to go to the temple and go into the court of the women where there there were these giant um, bronze, trumpet-shaped receptacles, you know, big at the top, and then they would go down like this. You've seen those where kids can throw money in for different charity causes. But these were made out of bronze and they were in the court of the women around on the side of the walls. And the, the rich would like to take, you know, bags full of coins and dump all those coins in those brazen trumpet receptacles because then everybody would turn and look because as they hit the brass, they'd make a lot of noise going down and everybody say, oh, they're giving so much, aren't they spiritual? That's where the expression sounding your own trumpet originated from. So they taught that God was pleased with your giving based on its size in direct proportion to its size and then Jesus has to come along. And he he, uh, upset their apple cart because he taught in direct contradiction to this when he commended the little widow woman who gave her two piddly little mites worth nothing. Uh, I'm sure when she put them in the receptacle, it didn't make much noise at all. Tinkle, tinkle, that was it and was gone. Nobody looked at her except the Lord noticed. And he commended her because she gave All that she had so what he taught was that God was pleased with a gift not in in proportion to its size but in proportion to its sacrifice she gave everything so doesn't that put everybody on equal ground then it does however the teaching of the religious rulers of Israel with regard to wealth and to giving had been around so long that by the time of Christ most of the Jewish people believed that the rich were the most blessed of God, by God and that they had the surest hope of anyone to get into the kingdom and um, I got to thinking about that at least the Jews gave the credit for the wealth to God what do most wealthy people today do? right they say well well I've, look what I've amassed. (laughs) This is my doing. They don't even even give the credit to God. I know years ago I heard about one of the episodes on The Simpsons that made me angry. I did not see it because I don't watch that awful cartoon, and I hope you don't let your children watch it. Is it still around? Is it? Don't let them watch it. But there was an incident that I heard of where I guess, I don't know if it was the father was... Or the little boy was going to pray, or the father, or whatever. But they said, "Well, why, why, why thank God for this food? I, you know, I work to make this food." And that's eg- exactly the attitude of most people today. You know, this was my doing. My wealth is my own doing. Uh, John D. Rockefeller actually said that wealth was God's way of saying, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Whew. That's blasphemous. But anyway, so the Jews believed that if anyone was going to get into heaven, surely it would be the rich because, you know, um, not only did God show that he was pleased with them because they were rich, but also they could give the most. You know, alms giving, temple donations, synagogue giving. And if not actually a means of purchasing a place in the kingdom, surely it would gain a person a more favored spot in the kingdom. But this really, this is nothing new. I mean, the Jews taught this. The disciples were kind of caught up in it, too. They sort of believed. That's why they were so shocked that the rich young ruler couldn't get into the kingdom. But this is nothing new. If you look down through history, um, in the Middle Ages, there the, the Roman Catholic Church came up with this man-made idea of indulgences. And... Um, They, they actually, well, they came up with that idea so they could, the church could get more money and get rich, but also it was a way, they said, to purchase one's salvation, or at least to purchase one's early release from purgatory, which is a doctrine not found in the scripture. And then today we even have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, God will, if you um, give, he'll give even more and, You know, God will show his blessings on you by making you prosperous. It's just not anything really new. We live in a church, the church age, which is the the age of Laodicea. And what did the Laodicean church brag about? Being rich. We have need of nothing. You know, they really didn't even depend. They didn't need God. Because where do we find God? He's on the outside of the church. Knocking. You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me in. That's the age we're in right now. Well, if even the rich, like that rich young ruler, could not enter the kingdom with all of his ability to purchase uh, bullocks for sacrifices, he didn't have to just go with two little pigeons. He could, go, he could buy a pair of oxen uh, for his sacrifices. If even a man like him couldn't be saved, then the disciples said, who then can be saved? They had been, you see, entrenched all their lives in rabbinic teaching. And even after having spent three years with Jesus, they still did not get the full concept of a non-works faith. Matthew tells us that they were exceedingly amazed. Mark tells us, that when they heard this they were astonished out of measure which literally means they were stricken out of their senses they were utterly bewildered what he had said about the impossibility of rich men entering to heaven that just simply broke all bounds this was revolutionary they couldn't believe it and I'm sure that think about this one disciple in particular when he heard this a disciple who had a problem with covetousness i don't think he liked these words at all and which disciple and remember we're only now about two weeks from the cross judas i think this was a big big turn off for judas iscariot he was the one who was in charge of the money bag and he had a problem with the sin of covetousness So we are told in verse 26 here of Matthew 19, beholding them, that's the Lord. Again, he's giving his men a penetrating look. He's looking right into the hearts of their souls. He carefully answers their question, which, by the way, we find out in Mark had been asked among themselves. All right. They see the rich young ruler go off, not entering into the kingdom. Then they hear the Lord saying about how impossible it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven and uh, so then they're saying among themselves who then can be saved he of course knows what they're asking and so he gives his answer what is his answer with men this is impossible but with god all things are possible do you know what the lord jesus just said there Do you know what he said with just half of his sentence when he said, with men, this is impossible? He put the death sentence on all work systems religions. Every religion and every cult that have ever existed are human achievement works based. They're all based on man doing something on his own Cord to get himself into God's presence. And he just put the death sentence on that. And I say all religions. I do not consider Christianity a religion. It is a relationship with the true and living God. Christianity alone of all religions. Is based on God's grace. Through faith. So what was the question? Who then can be saved? What's the answer? With men This is impossible. You see, with men, salvation is impossible, period. In other words, men's way of salvation, whatever way it might be, whether it's through heavy giving or expensive sacrifices, whether it's by saying prayers three times a day, five times a day, 20 times a day, whether it's a yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to Mecca or being a member of the right church, the right family, the right caste, whether it's buying lots of masses to be said on your behalf or buying indulgences or living a monastic life of self denial, beating yourself every day, whether it's worshiping cows or monkeys or snakes or kissing statues or icons or saying zillions and zillions of Hail Marys or participating in all the right ceremonies or feast days or uh, rituals or blowing yourself up for the cause of jihad, whatever it might be, all men's attempted ways of salvation are discolos, impossible, rich or poor. Who can be saved? No one. With men, this is impossible. But aren't you glad the Lord didn't end the the sentence there? Oh, I love the buts of Scripture. (laughs) He went on to say, but, but, uh, with God, all things are possible. The wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't you like the B.U.T.s of Scripture? I love them. Now, the word where he said, but with God, all things are possible. The words all things here refers to those things that are necessary for man's salvation. There is one way to be saved, and it's not man's way, whatever of the many diverse ways that might be. It is God's way. And God's way is the one way that is possible because he sent us his son, a sin substitute in his son. Therefore, in the same way that God, if he wanted to, God could pass a camel, humps and all, through the eye of a needle. He could pass an elephant through the eye of a needle. He could pass a dinosaur through the eye of a needle or the whole world, if he wanted to, right? So in the same way it's, that's possible, he can also not only bring poor men, but even rich men into the kingdom, into his eternal kingdom. And so, because I like to be an optimist, I would hope that the rich young ruler was, he, that he became one of these all things are possible with God's situations. I would hope that after he heard about the crucifixion and the resurrection that he rethought every his discussion with the Lord Jesus and that he thought about what he had said and he was willing to um, forsake all for the sake of Christ I would hope that we would see him in heaven I don't know, I can't be dogmatic, but I would even like to make him Joseph of Arimathea. You know, I I just have fun with that. But uh, although riches can indeed be a barrier for many people, and they are, yet nothing is too hard for the Lord. All right, now in this day, I want to say this because we are certainly living in a day of uncertainty when it comes to... Economics situation and therefore it is particularly important that we christians remember that there is great peril there is great danger in trusting in earthly riches and you know they're here today they can take wings and be gone tomorrow i don't my my husband i had to give him this message because he doesn't Oh, when the paperwork comes in he just about has a heart attack and i said you know don't trust in in the riches um And I don't think that we really, I was so convicted studying this week, I don't think we, any of us in here, realize how much we really do trust in riches. For example, think about this. I've been reading this book, Living Water, Kathy, uh, that um, David Yarborough gave me from the carpenter shop. And, uh, oh, talk about getting convicted and how spoiled we are over here. But what if we had to walk to come together for worship? Or what if we had to walk in all kinds of weather, rain, snow, cold, it's cold out today. What if we had to walk in order to come together to fellowship with sisters in Christ and to study the Bible? That we didn't have cars, that we couldn't afford the gasoline to to come together. Would we be willing to walk? You know, I, I know some of the young girls, especially in the other study, they have difficulty getting to Bible study because they have children. Well, you know, people in other countries They bring their children with them. We had one missionary that came to our church from Russia, I think it was, and he showed a slide of the Russian believers in their coats, huddled together in the deep woods with snow everywhere. I don't know, he said the temperature was like something below zero. And they had all walked, brought their children with them so that they could come together to to worship the Lord and to study His Word. What would we do? Would we still meet together? Uh, What if we didn't have a nice shelter? Sometimes we complain about the temperature in here. Oh, it's too hot. It's too cold. The seats are too hard. You know, we're so spoiled. They don't even... I mean, you look, we had another missionary the other night who's going to go to Togo, Africa, and they have nothing but a little grass hut to meet in. Would we still meet? Look at this beautiful facility we have. And we complain? Good gracious. I want to read to you and talk about conviction. This is a song... uh, in the hymn book not this book but i'm going to read to you a song that the chinese christians when they gather together this is i don't think they have hymn books but this is a song they sing yet today some of them are gathered together today they might be singing this song would we be willing to sing this song and not be hypocrites would we be able to sing this song from our hearts let me read to you i don't know the tune of it and i've already showed you i can't sing but so i won't even try but These are the words. I can't guarantee that all the ways they talk about how the apostles were martyred are accurate, but here is what they sing. Just listen to these words. From the time the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, the followers of the Lord have willingly sacrificed themselves. Tens of thousands have died that the gospel might prosper. As such, they have obtained the crown of life. Now, that's a song. I know it sounds like just words, but they sing it. And here's their chorus. It's a long one. To be a martyr for the Lord, to be a martyr for the Lord, I am willing to die gloriously for the Lord. Those apostles who loved the Lord to the end willingly followed the Lord down the path of suffering. John was exiled to the lonely Isle of Patmos. Stephen was stoned to death by an angry crowd. Matthew was stabbed to death in Persia by a mob. Mark died as horses pulled his two legs apart. Dr. Luke was cruelly hanged. Peter, Philip, and Simon were crucified on a cross. Bartholomew was skinned alive by the heathen. Thomas died in India after five horses pulled his body apart. The Apostle James was beheaded by King Herod. Little James was cut in half by a sharp saw. James, the brother of the Lord, was stoned to death. Matthias was tied to a pillar and shot by arrows. Matthias had his head cut off in Jerusalem. Paul was a martyr under Emperor Nero. I am willing to take, take up the cross and go forward to follow the Apostles down the road of sacrifice that tens of thousands of precious souls can be saved. I am willing to leave all and be a martyr for the Lord. Wow. I can't imagine singing that in our churches here, but might get to that point. Would we gather together if our lives were threatened for doing so? It may get to that point. There's a lot of things happening. I just saw again on the news last night how homosexuals, did you re- see that? Burst into a church service and had a, little demonstration in front of the congregation things are going to be changing I hope I hope that um, we would be every one of us willing to give our all and that if things got so bad we'd still get together in our little I know some of you couldn't possibly walk here but that we could meet together at least with fellow believers out in the woods and that we'd be willing to do that So when I read these words here, I can't help but think how rich we are here in the USA and how our riches really have hindered so many millions of people in our nation from turning to Christ and how our riches have hindered even the church greatly from being completely sold out. So I got to thinking maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing for our economy. I know that's a scary thought, but maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing for us to to suffer financially, maybe it will really, really strengthen the church. I think it would. I think it would. Well, I don't know what time is it. Five minutes to do the second part. The promise of true riches. Let's look at verses 27 to 30. Then answered who else but Peter. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Now, some people, I'm going to be able to, I'm just going to have to really go through this really fast here, so I'll just explain it maybe as I read it, but some people have criticized Peter for asking that question. You know, Lord, we have forsaken all, and uh, what therefore shall we have? They criticize him because they say he still has a commercial view of discipleship. He wants to know what is going to be in it for them. But rather than criticizing Peter, I, I want to look at how the Lord responded to him, because that will tell me if Peter's question was okay or not. And the Lord responded to him very graciously, basically admitting, yes, you have given up and forsaken all. You know, remember when all the Lord's other disciples turned and walked no more with him? And he turned to the twelve and he said, will you two leave me? And, and they said, Peter, the spokesman for them, he said, you alone have the words of eternal life. And they did. They did forsake their homes and their families and all in order to follow him. And, uh, you know, if the Lord wanted to rebuke Peter here, he could have done it. The Lord had has had a lot of practice in rebuking Peter. <laughs> if Peter was wrong, he could have said something like, Get thee behind me, Satan, once again. But he didn't. He, he graciously answered Peter. So I do not criticize Peter's question here. Here's what the Lord said to them. Verily... I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration. You know what that's a term for? The millennial kingdom. That ye that have followed me in the G- regeneration, when the son of man shall sit in his in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here is a special, unique promise to the twelve disciples. This, this is not a promise for you and I. It's to the twelve apostles with matthias taking judas iscariot's seat that in the time of the millennial kingdom the 12 apostles would sit on thrones under christ reigning over israel the 12 tribes of israel which tells us the 10 tribes of israel were not lost (laughs) they'll rule over the 12 tribes of israel this is not a promise for you and i but guess what we do have a promise that we too will reign it's elsewhere in the scripture and I give you the, the references in your books. But we will, re- the, the saints of the church age will reign in the millennial kingdom over the Gentile nations. We will judge and rule over the Gentile nations. And I believe that the apostle Paul, who was an apostle out of season and who was the apostle to the Gentiles, that he will specially reign over the Gentile nation. So there'll be Christ reigning, Paul under him, and then all the church saints under Paul. That's my personal belief, but um, sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> all right, so let's see. So he's giving them this unique promise. And then he goes on, verse 29 says, and everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first okay let me quickly try to get through this because there's i really want to talk about the regeneration all right so this was a gracious response by jesus to the lord and i disagree with those who criticize peter because of asking for a reward, and I criticize those, I disagree, I don't criticize, but I disagree with those who criticize Christians who look forward to receiving heavenly rewards. Yes, I know that first and foremost, our service for the Lord should be because we love him. Because he first loved us. And then we love him and, um, and we want to obey him. And we want to earn crowns so that we have something to give back to him, to cast at his feet. And I don't see anything wrong with this because the Lord himself is the one who, who has motivated us through the promise of rewards. He's the one who has given us these promises in order to strengthen us, to keep on keeping on, right? He's the one who told us to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. And he's the one who tells us that our labor is not in vain, that we shall reap if we faint not. He does this so as to encourage us and to let us know that our sacrifices in this present world will be compensated. And then they're going to be compensated. talk about a return on your investment a hundredfold. What bank would give you that kind of return? That's 10,000%. It will be a return in kind, yet different. Spiritual relationships and spiritual possessions in exchange for natural connections and material substance. You know, a lot of these people in China um, have probably been excluded from their families, lost their homes for their faith in Christ. I know if a Muslim comes to faith in Christ, he even stands chance of being murdered. Um, Jews if they come to faith in Christ a lot of times if they're from an orthodox family the family will say Kaddish over them which is like a, have a funeral for them a lot of people have had to forsake mother and father and I know what that's like my family forsook me you know these, these Chinese Christians have had to lose their homes but the Lord says it'll be worth it all I will not only recompense you in this life with the abundant life what are our rewards right now Peace, joy, patience, love, fulfillment, all the wonderful things, sure hope. But in the world to come, he will also more than compensate us and them. According to 1 Corinthians 6.2, that's where it tells us, by the way, that the saints are going to share with the 12 apostles in the uh, Lord's millennial reign not over Israel, but over the Gentile nations. And what I want to talk in closing, just keep with me one more minute, is about the term the regeneration. That is the time when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. That's when Christ comes at the second coming, Revelation chapter 19. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord comes. He will literally sit upon the throne of David and rule the world from Jerusalem. Now, the word regeneration literally means rebirth or new birth. And the only other time that we find it in the New Testament is in Titus 3, 5, where Paul is speaking about the new birth of the Christian, of the believer, the spiritual rebirth. However, here in Matthew 19, the Lord uses word to speak about the new birth of the earth, Birth of the earth, a new birth of the earth, which will take place at the time of his return. He will take back possession of this earth from the usurper Satan, who is now the God of this world, Satan. And the curse that God placed upon this earth back at the time of the fall of man, when he not only cursed Satan, but he cursed, um, I mean, the serpent. But he cursed man, and he cursed woman, and he cursed this earth. He also cursed Satan, but he cursed this earth, didn't he? And um, But that curse, at the time of his return, will be, by and large, removed from the earth. It will st- There still will be sin during the Millennial Kingdom. It won't be able to be overt, because if it is, Christ will crush it. Anybody who overtly sins will die, but otherwise, during the millennium, there will not be any death. And you know, the world during the tribulation is going to have its topography completely changed. There's going to be earthquakes and and volcanoes and upheaval and things come meteors hitting and who knows nuclear warfare and everything. But it's ultimately going to change the whole topography of the earth, so that the earth during the millennial kingdom will be like paradise regained. The continents are, you know, it says all the mountains are going to flatten out, valleys will come up, so the whole earth will be covered with land so you can walk from Africa to the United States, you know, you'll be able to walk everywhere. it will go back to being, talk about global warming? Yeah, it's going to happen <laughs> because there will be no cold up in the North Pole or the South Pole. The whole world will again be under a terrarium effect like it was in the, you know, back before the fall. So that people, everything will be lush everywhere, greenery everywhere. People will live, again, long, long lives. You and I will be there, but we'll be there in our glorified bodies. But people who go into the kingdom in their human bodies will live the whole time, a thousand years. A man at a hundred will be young. Wouldn't that be nice? At a hundred years old, he's still a child. Um, but, But think about this. You know, I wonder sometimes why I get so why I'm so frustrated with this world that we live in and then I got to studying this and I thought well no wonder I'm so frustrated with this world I've been regenerated but I'm living on an earth that has not yet been born again (laughs) this earth has not gone to the into the regeneration you see when you're reborn old things are passed away behold all things are become new we but we still live in these earth, these temporal bodies, right? Well, this earth is behind us a step, you and I, because it's still totally in the flesh. It still has Satan as its God. But when Christ returns, the earth will be born again, so it will have its new nature, paradise regained, but it'll still be the earth. It'll still be the earth, but it'll be new nature old things passed away it'll be lush fruitful just like when we have our new nature we're supposed to bear fruit much fruit for christ we're supposed to lose our venomous ferocity all the animals during the millennial kingdom will lose their venom their ferocity they you know you could let your child play in a snake pit um the, the lion will lay down with the lamb. All the carnivores will become, again, herbivores. But you know what's exciting to think about? Okay, that's for a thousand years. The earth will be born again. But it still won't be glorified. Do you know when the earth will be glorified? You know, we are not glorified until the time of the rapture when we receive our glorified new bodies. The earth will also be glorified. After the thousand year kingdom, it says that this earth will be destroyed, the earth and the heaven, the atmospheric heaven around it, and God will create a brand new earth and a new heavens, and there will be no remnant of curse at all because there will be no sin in the new heaven and the new earth. It will be a glorified earth. So you see how the earth follows the same steps that we do, and so that's why the millennial kingdom is called the regeneration it is the born again part of the earth yay the earth will finally be born again and that's why we're so frustrated because we're we've been born again and we're still living on a a non-born again earth well i thought that was kind of cool i hope you followed me (laughs) anyway the regeneration you know this world This world one day, did you know, this made a lady mad yesterday, but did you know that democracy is not God's form of government? Democracy is not a perfect government. Now, it served us well while we still had our roots grounded on the word of God. But a democracy without roots in the word of God does not work. Because what does democracy mean? That people speak. And since when have people apart from being founded on the, root, the standards of righteousness of God's word? Since when have the majority ever been right apart from from God's truth? A democracy is not God's way of government. God's way of government will be a benevolent, theocratic dictatorship. Oh, okay, a dictatorship. Monarch would be, you yeah. <laughs> a monarch will rule, but he'll be a benevolent monarch. It will be a theocratic government, and so one thing I want to just leave you with is: over the holidays, over the Thanksgiving and Christmas break, until we come back again, keep your focus on what lies ahead. You know, it can get you can get despair, despaired, looking at the news and everything that's happening. But no matter what happens on this earth now, even maybe before we meet again, who knows what could happen? We could be hit buy a missile or a rocket from Iraq. We're just a brink away from all kinds of things that could happen. No matter what happens with the economic fluctuations and the uncertainties with uh, the political transition and the increasingly anti-God culture that we live in, The nuclear and terrorist threats. Do not despair and do not lose your focus. Just keep persistently, remember the persistent widow? Keep persistently praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for the regeneration and the soon regeneration of this earth because that means the Lord is coming, his kingdom is coming. And it could be getting very, very close. That kingdom could be as close as seven years away. And you know what that means. (laughs) Rapture could happen before we meet again. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I I wouldn't mind one single bit. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may we remember the words of the 20th century martyr, Jim Elliot, who said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. May we, Father, ever be mindful of the truth that there is no profit in gaining the riches of this world if we lose our own soul or if we even lose our testimony and our joy and our heavenly rewards. And most of all, if we cause your heart to grieve by focusing on them instead of on you. So help us, Lord, to to work diligently on keeping our priorities and our perspective in proper focus so that we will be readily willing to give up anything for your name's sake and for the gospel's sake. Father, may we even be willing and ready and able to sing the martyr's song with our Chinese brethren. I pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.